Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. Our guest on today's podcast is Brandon O'Neill. Brandon's vice president and charitable planning consultant with Fidelity Charitable. He's a recognized expert in philanthropy, and his business unit is continually among the most impactful and effective fundraising arms across the entire Fidelity network. He's found his way onto the pages of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, and we're very fortunate to have Brandon with us today to talk about how smarter, more effective giving can drive impact and lead to meaningful, lasting change. So please join me in welcoming Brandon O'Neill. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning, Brandon. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, James. Good to be here. Hey, I wanted to start our conversation today with the concept of philanthropic alpha. Uh, Can you kind of define that for our listeners and maybe give a couple of key ingredients that you see when... Uh, philanthropic plans turn into alpha-driven plans? Yeah, for sure. So in the context of alpha, what we usually think in the financial industry is how are you providing additional return beyond the benchmark? So a lot of money managers are kind of managed to this kind of alpha number. Are you providing additional returns beyond the benchmark? So philanthropic alpha, in my mind, is what are the planning steps that we can take in order to Um, give in a way that's going to provide more returns for those charities that you're wanting to support. So there's lots of ways that that can be constructed in kind of the planning conversation. But I'd say if you were, if you were to ask me, what's the biggest way that people can generate alpha for the causes they care about, it's to kind of do the difficult thing and put the checkbook down and uh, to give with other assets, right? So if you write a check to charity, you get a single deduction, but if you gift an appreciated property, not only do you get that same type of deduction, you also convert some of the capital gains that would have been subject uh, to IRS um, to the charities that you care about. So eventually getting more money to those organizations you care about. So providing that planning gets more money in the hands of those charities. And that's where I think philanthropic alpha can be generated. And then you were recently quoted in Wall Street Journal, and I'm going to hit on a couple things from that piece. You already referred mm-hmm. to one, but they talk about the concept of income tax trifecta. Yeah. Always like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's associated with smart giving. Kind of walk us through those distinct, those mm-hmm. three distinct, you know, parts of that trifecta and how and where they benefit the, uh, the donor and the organization, really. Yeah. So for me, that article was really focusing on, Um, there's a tremendous amount of wealth that is being stored in retirement accounts. And so at death, um, this asset while you're living is really not the best asset to gift out of because, you know, when you take money out of an IRA, you generate an income tax, uh, you know, it creates an income tax liability, and then you can do a corresponding charitable gift unless you're old enough to take uh, required minimum distributions, and then you can use uh, some charitable planning there. So, this kind of the article was really discussing how they can use IRA assets as the preferred vehicle at death to fund philanthropy. Because if you think about it with IRAs and things like that, if you leave those to children and they have to start drawing out of those IRAs, they create a tax liability. So if you have right, they'll, to, all, 
Yeah. They'll figure out what IRD is. Pretty <laughs> yeah. So what this kind of strategy was to do was instead of uh, using those assets um, to children, if you have philanthropic intent, why not start by looking at the retirement dollars first? Because there's no tax drag um, there. I spent a lot of time trying to get people to think um, how they can be more effective. And so with that, using the IRA assets instead of the children inheriting it, where they have to draw income off of it and create a tax liability. If there is philanthropic intent, you can earmark those dollars in those IRAs for charity and more money gets to those causes that you care about. And there's no tax drag to the children. There's actually some additional savings that can be generated and getting more money to those causes you care about. And you also talked about donors deepening their family connections mm-hmm. uh, through the, you know, to the different causes based on the structure of the gift with the IRA beneficiaries being, uh-huh. you know, certainly one of those, uh, you know, one of those things they could do. Uh, talk to us about ways that that does bring the entire family into the philanthropic mission. Yeah. So for me, I think having uh, that philanthropic conversation is really the great way for many people to kind of pass their values from one generation to the next. And um, one of the best stories I've heard is, Uh, A family was sitting down trying to figure out what they wanted to do for Christmas, and they basically sat around the table and had this conversation. And we've got a program within our our donor advised fund that allows you to earmark portions of your account to others. It's called a gift for giving. So he used a gift for giving for all the grandchildren. Um, They sat down at Thanksgiving. They said everyone's getting, you know, a hundred dollar gift for giving, you know, with the goal that we all sit back around the table at Christmas and say, where did you give to and why? So it was a great way to kind of instill that philanthropic giving into the next generation in a way that's pretty seamless. Because uh, that's kind of a hard conversation to get into, but this just made it a kind of a, an easy discussion to say, here's a portion of the account. Um, where do you want to give it to and why? And so when you make those gifts of mm-hmm. giving to the next generation, mm-hmm. what level of involvement do they have? Do they end up... Uh, selecting the charity and then passing that information on to the, you know, on to the holder yeah. of the, of the DAF, or do they actually have the interaction with the DAF like the, uh, like the owner would? So they get the grant making privileges on that portion that is assigned to them. So they get the same kind of grant capability so they can pick and choose which nonprofit organizations, uh, the amount, whether they want to be acknowledged or remain anonymous. So they have that ability um, just as if they did, with the account holder, what they don't get is a report back to the individual because it is a gift for giving. They have the discretion to give where and how. Um, So we don't report it back uh, to the original grant or who made the gift for giving. Um, But usually it's a kind of a conversation at that point. But other than that, what a really cool way to get hands on in in that world, right? It is very Uh, much so. And of course, philanthropy is not just a way to get family together. It's also a good, uh, a good exercise for team building. And you and your team mm-hmm. just uh, completed a really neat project for uh, Rise Against Hunger, I think. Can you talk us through uh, uh, what you guys did there? Yeah, so it's a really great event. It's um, they so we're a fundraising organization. We're a pretty competitive group of people. So we were at our national fundraising meeting. And they set us up in tables of eight and basically said, you know, whoever can fill the most of these little rice packets that are there to feed uh, people overseas. Um, so basically they lined, you know, eight tables up and said, start filling. And so it was kind of a competition. And over the course of 
probably two hours, maybe an hour and a half. We filled 16, we put enough food for 16,000 meals um, through this program. Oh, wow. And so it's uh, rice, uh, some other types of uh, like veggie packets and things like that. But it was a really great experience because we're all super, super competitive. And at the end of the day, that uh, there were a lot of smiles on that face in that room about like what we were doing and knowing that on the other side of it, that there would be families who would be getting a nourishing meal through kind of uh, fun competition amongst peers, but knowing that it. Well, I, I understand y'all are used to beating the rest of the nation in terms of, uh, <laughs> in terms of competition. So that was just yeah. another notch in the cap. Huh? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And a little closer to home, you and your wife, Heather, you put together a memorial for the students and teachers of Rob Elementary uh, who yeah. lost their lives in Uvalde. For those who didn't see the New York Times article on it, uh, can you describe the memorial? How'd you come up with the idea and what transpired as a result of it? Yeah, I don't know where it really came from. It was just, um, so I was in Austin that week when it happened. And uh, just for whatever reason, it touched me in a way that I, some of these other ones just hadn't. I didn't know if it was because it was so local but as I was driving out of Austin, I had to drive by um, the University of Texas, and I saw the the clock tower there where I think the first uh, kind of big national shooting happened. And something just kind of shook me uh, that day. And later that evening, I went home and talked to my wife about you know, what are something we can do. And it was a small gesture, but it was something that I, you know, so I ordered 19 maroon backpacks for the children of Uvalde, two pink backpacks for the uh, teachers who were who were killed as well. And then I also set up um, 10 shopping bags because of the Buffalo shooting was less than a, a week before that. And so set it up in the front of my house um, to set the, the bags up to look like a school photo. Um, and a, a couple people in my neighborhood shared it on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook myself, uh, but they shared it. And next thing I know, I'm on the channel eight news and then it gets picked up in an article um, in the New York times. But to me, the whole purpose of why I set that up, um, you know, I didn't want to feel, I just really wanted people to, to have a conversation in my mind, uh, to talk to one another about some of the things that are going on in our country and how can we just kind of have a conversation, uh, and not feel like we're yelling at one another, but really more just to talk, uh, to riot, try and encourage discussion amongst each other. Because I feel like the thing that I learned after setting it up and having the conversations that I had with neighbors and friends, and I even had a, a former teacher not uh, who is in Richardson now, but uh, had lived in Uvalde and grown up there, so had a real deep connection to it, um, stopped oh, wow. by my house and we had a conversation. And I think everyone, no matter which side of where you're at on the political spectrum, feels like this can be a solvable issue in my mind. Um, and I think just having a discussion helps. So, Well, let, let's talk about your personal journey for a minute. So you yeah. struggle with dyslexia, just you and about 40 million other Americans, I think. How did you yeah. cope with that? And how did having dyslexia as a kid, how did a dyslexic kid end up in finance? What happened? Yeah, uh, it, it's something that's plagued me for a while. Like uh, numbers were never my strongest suit. But for me, it was uh, the thing that I liked about finance was helping people. Uh, it was a way to help people accomplish a goal, a dream, a vision of what their life might look like. And understanding how uh, money can be used as a tool to do that uh, was kind of the, the primary thing. And <laughs> numbers aren't my strong suit even today. Um, but there's a lot of great software and things out there that do a lot of kind of the hard, heavy lifting. But the 
other side of it is what I always really enjoyed in finance. Um, and then, and then after from you graduated from, from TCU, you yeah. had a career in insurance, did some insurance stuff. You did um, yep. your, your tour of duty as a financial advisor. How did the uh, career path in philanthropy uh, re- reveal itself to you? Yeah, so in 2013, my wife and I um, went and volunteered at a soup kitchen up here in North Texas. It's called Soup Mobile. And what was different about this type of soup kitchen is it's mobile. So you go out to where uh, the people are. Um, And so what was kind of revealing there was, you know, you kind of prepare yourself for what you're going to see those days, right? You're going to unfortunately see people with mental health problems. You're going to see, unfortunately, there's a, a large population of homeless that are former Uh, war veterans and things like that. But what I was not prepared to see was the number of children who no fault of their own, who were effectively uh, hungry, starving in one of the wealthiest cities in the country. And so for me, I just, it was a moment that kind of shook me. And I was like, well, what can I do uh, to help? What can I do to, to, to change this? What skills and talents do I have that I feel like I could share? Um, And as luck would have it, Fidelity Charitable was hiring in 2013 in the Dallas market. And so uh, had a few conversations, had a few interviews with a couple of people I used to know on kind of the annuity side who now are in the charitable group and uh, been there since uh, 2013. So coming up on my 10 year anniversary here in the the gift planning group. But it was that single moment uh, of handing out food that just made me realize I should be doing more. And as luck would have it, uh, ended up in a place where I feel like I can do that. And so how, how easy is it or how difficult is it for someone to get involved in a career path with philanthropy if they're not working for a, you know, a particular end organization? Yeah. So for me, I think uh, the be- the best way to kind of get into it is find a cause that you really have a deep connection with and to really just kind of understand what do you, what do you have that could help those organizations? So whether it's some people might have a really strong network. Um, and if you want to help, just be a voice for those individuals within your own personal network. You don't necessarily have to find a full end-all, be-all career within philanthropy. You can certainly do that. That's what I was, I'm was. i lucky enough to do. But for me, I think philanthropy's biggest thing uh, that really needs is advocacy and, and true advocacy amongst friends and colleagues about what it is that you're passionate about. Because the thing I've learned in the uh, you know, most of the 10 years I've been doing this is that the passion that people have for the causes are what really generate the large contributions and the donations that make a meaningful difference. It's that advocacy. It's that people showing up and sharing the message and sharing the story and the vision of how the programs are going to help make whatever cause it might be, you know, juvenile cancer or, or whatever it might be, um, to really try and push those, those, um, things forward within your network. And I think that's probably the first step. If you want a career in it, there's a lot of, uh, great opportunities, whether it's fundraising or whether it's actually being on the servicing side of the philanthropic sector, there's lots of ways people can help out. And let's talk about structure of, of giving for a minute. So you, you had yep. mentioned earlier, one of the benefits of donor advised funds, let's, let's talk about donor advised funds a little more, uh, in depth here. Mm-hmm. Kind of give me, first of all, let's talk about the benefits of establishing one. What what are all the good things that come out of it? But let's also address a common criticism that uh, funds are held inside the DAFs. And there are people who don't feel like those funds get to the ultimate charitable beneficiaries fast enough. Yeah. So I'll start by just talking what a donor advice fund is, how it works. So 
Um, Fidelity Charitable, we offer donor advised funds. Now, donor advised funds became popular in the 1930s and then became more popular in the 60s and 70s, tending to have more of a local focus on them. And Fidelity Charitable was the first national donor advised fund, meaning there was no geographic restriction on which nonprofits you could support. Um, so the way that these donor advised funds work is they're almost like a charitable IRA. You set them up at the nonprofit. Uh, you fund those accounts. Those are irrevocable gifts for charity. So most of the time people gift us cash, but more commonly it's appreciated property like stocks, bonds, mutual funds. We also have the ability to take in S and C Corp, inter, uh, interest and limited liability companies, kind of the non-publicly traded sector as well. So we can do all kinds of unique assets when they come in. So the benefit is, is you get that deduction right up front, right when the account gets funded. You don't have to worry about doing all the different tax receipts. You get one receipt from, from us. Once the funds are in there, the donor gets an app that allows them to give to any charities of their choice. So they tell us that the types of organizations, the kinds that we can support are tax-exempt 501c3s. So think of any charity you give to today that you get 100% deduction for. Religious houses of worship like churches, temples, synagogues, mosques can all be donated to. And then the last category is government instrumentalities, schools, universities, hospitals, public parks, things like that. So the types of organizations we can support are any tax exempt 501c3s. And while the money is sitting, uh, while you figure out what charities you want to support, it has the ability to grow. And those assets can grow completely and totally tax free for future philanthropic support. Um, so there's a lot of neat features there. So you get a lot of the benefits of a foundation with a lot without having to do a lot of the additional administrative work. Um, from a granting side, these are a Fidelity Charitable. Our program, we have a pretty uh, active granting policy. We believe that these accounts should be active grant making vehicles. So we have it within our policy to get money out to charities every year. So, or every, every two years is our policy. So you have a 24 month period where money has to be going out the door. The one thing I would say for the people who say, oh, money's not moving fast enough out of these accounts, um, for every $100 that is gifted into an account, within that first year, $39 is out the door. Within five years, $76 is out the door. And within a 10 year period, $89 is out the door. Um, so these are active grant making programs. Uh, just to kind of let you know, our donors have sent over $61 billion to charity in our 30 year history. So that's the money as it goes out the door to those organizations. And then if we look at the, at the world of foundations versus the, the donor mm -hmm. advice fund, that, that conversation always comes up. Uh, Let's stick with the DAFs here for a second, though, and talk about, I guess, if we're comparing DAFs to foundations, one of the one of the differences is in the ability to gift that end gift. Mm -hmm. You know, in the foundation, you're going to have a lot mm -hmm. more liberal opportunities in terms of how you how you donate mm -hmm. those funds. And in the DAF, since you've already gotten the you know, you've already gotten the mm -hmm. tax write off, there is a pretty strict. Uh, policy of it going to uh, an organization that passes yeah. the test. Talk us through that distinction of the of the two. Yeah, programs. so private foundations, they because they sit in a different area of tax code, um, you have a lot more control. But as a result, you don't get as much tax advantaged uh, strategies by doing that because you're um, 
you're getting less of a savings on the front end. You have a lot more control on the back end. And so private foundations, they do provide more flexibility on how dollars are utilized. So for us, just to kind of put it in context, it has to go to approved charity. It can't go into an individual. You can't pay family members through it like you can with a foundation. You can't do um, trips or due diligence trips to a foreign country to see which organizations they might want to support. These are primarily just for active grant making, right? So organizations that um, have already been approved. So in the world of um, foundations, you could say we're more comparable to a check writing private foundation, someone who's not as involved on the actual doing the service work itself and doing just more check writing, much more streamlined solution in that regard. And of course, one of the benefits of, you know, whether it's a foundation or a DAF is, you know, is giving gifts other Mm. than cash. So let's talk about some of the more, uh, uh, some of the more interesting and complicated Mm. giving scenarios. But before we get into the individual things, let's talk about uh, charitable remainder trust for a second. Uh, You made mention, I think during a podcast you did not too long ago about coupling uh, a charitable remainder Mm. trust with Mm -hmm. a DAF. And I thought that was really interesting. With a charitable remainder trust can be a great vehicle to utilize for giving. So a charitable remainder trust is a trust that is set up where the remainder beneficiary is an end charity. So these trusts can be set up um, for an individual to take income or to take assets into that trust. That trust is going to pay income to a non-charitable beneficiary for their lifetime. So usually Individuals will set this up in their name and their spouse's name. It will generate income off of the trust for their lifetime. And then after that lifetime, whatever is left in the trust goes to that in charity. And so what we've seen a lot of individuals doing is instead of having that end charity be one organization, they will utilize a donor advised fund as that end recipient charity. And then they can list their children on the account. So what happens is that asset when they pass goes into a DAF set up for their children where their children have more control over how those dollars are utilized. So if you think about it from a family conversation standpoint, the family gets to use the income that that trust provides. And then at death, it passes that legacy instead of to that one charity, it goes to the family where they can make kind of that longer term legacy of giving more real. And so that's something I've seen more attorneys start to utilize in their planning to say, hey, how do we encourage the kids. Um, it's a great way to do that and utilizing that charitable remainder trust for the income as well. And I would assume if you're, if you're looking at who has grant making authority for the, uh-huh. the DAF, I mean, that's, there's gotta be some thought there does put yeah. into you know, who that's going to be and you know, who the, you know, because that, that's like a successor trustee mm-hmm. almost, but it's a trustee for your charitable mm-hmm. intentions. Those successors, yeah, when they uh, – Throughout. I was going to say when those successors inherit it, they, they kind of get all the same privileges. So it, you do have to really have some consideration on, on that piece of it. And, and do you see some of the attorneys actually splitting uh, those gifts into multiple DAFs with – Yeah. Or – just having it in one with multiple. It just depends on the the overall goal for the for the donor. So, I'd say nine times out of ten, uh, it goes to the children. And if they've got three children, well, then three separate accounts would then be established to get those remainder um, distributions from the trust. 
but sometimes some people have a, a charity they really, really love and they want to continue to support that that organization over many, many years. We also have an endowment feature that can be activated on these accounts. So instead of one check being distributed, well, uh, it goes to where we will send two checks a year. As long as there's money in the account, we'll do a 5% distribution to those charities. So uh, rather than just kind of getting one check at death, it kind of continues that legacy of giving. And we really see that with individuals who have concern around mission drift, right? If I leave a big check to an organization, are they going to use it how I best feel fit to, to that organization? So some people will say, rather than sending them the big check, let's just send you know a 5% distribution off of this amount every year. But just from the the components of it, I mean, when they make the when they make the contribution into the charitable remainder trust, there is a tax benefit for the donor. There isn't there is yes. an income portion right. that's assigned yep. for the for the non charitable income recipients, and that's probably children. Uh, yes. And then at the end of the day, you've yep. got either these endpoint charities or uh, it could be an endpoint donor advised fund with kind of a new regime that would go in and administer those gifts, I think is the, is the, that's correct. Kind of the nuts yeah. and bolts of it. Uh, yeah. I guess the question I would have, uh, you know, to follow that up is when you talk about the mission drift and we see this a lot, we see clients that have an annual giving plan, during their life that includes a lot of the smaller charities that they're qualified charities, no question. Uh, but their annual budgets are, mm-hmm. are minimal and they're active in the community. Uh, and then when we see their estate giving or their plan giving, a lot of times these smaller charities are left out of that mix precisely for the reason that, mm-hmm. that you talked about. There's just the worry that, you know, is that particular charity going to be around? Are they going to be able to handle this kind of, this kind of gift? Uh, and so maybe understanding that, that right. the, the CRT DAF endowment model is available uh, would be really helpful, not only to donors who are looking to continue giving in the same manner that they gave during their lifetime, but also for those charities who, you know, are smaller in nature, but doing all the, you know, doing all the heavy lifting that a community needs. Uh, so I hope that's, uh, I hope yeah. that's something that people take away from this as a, as an opportunity. Let's talk about some other potential assets to gift uh, crypto. You know, I, I know of course mm-hmm. this hasn't been the yep. greatest, yep. you know, last nine months in the history of crypto, but there are still some significant yeah. profits for people who were in early on. How does uh, fidelity charitable work with crypto mm-hmm. If someone wanted to give, uh, say, some of their Bitcoin or Ethereum, would they be able to give, you know, those two primary cryptos? Would there is there an ability to, yep. you know, give any of the altcoins or anything like that? And what does that process look like? Yeah, lots of questions there. Yeah. So in 2015, we amended our gift acceptance policy to take in cryptocurrency. So. Um, there's a handful, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two big ones that we can take in. We can also do um, a Bitcoin cash, but the other altcoins, we don't have uh, anything in place to accept those. So currently Bitcoin and Ethereum are the big ones we take in. 
And last year, just so everyone's aware, we took in around 340 million in cryptocurrency donations for future philanthropic support. So the way that works for us is we have a Bitcoin letter um, a questionnaire that we would send a donor just to say, how did you acquire it? We want to know a couple facts and circumstances about the, the crypto that we would be taking in. Uh, one of the biggest hurdles that we always tell people is it's important to note that you want to gift your long-term positions um, because if you gift short-term, you're not getting as much of the advantageous tax savings. Uh, it is a capital asset in the eyes of the IRS, so you really want to make sure that you've held it longer than a year before you make that donation. And so in this questionnaire, it has a lot of that information in there. Once our team does our diligence, we're, accept, we're comfortable with accepting that crypto, we then send a um, QR code to the donor through uh, email, and that's basically our wallet. Uh, they would then send us the, the, the units of the crypto that they'd want to donate, and then we take it in and we sell it relatively quickly. We want to get out of that asset so there's money there for the grant making like we've mentioned. So it's a pretty streamlined process. Um, the one thing I will note, because cryptocurrency is different than a publicly traded stock, um, they would have to get their own independent third-party appraisal for those donations. And then, Brandon, as far as the crypto donations are concerned, would those donations go into an existing donor-advised fund, uh, or is, does a separate one have to be set up to uh, handle the crypto? That's holdings? correct. Yep, that's correct. Yep, we can get it uh, however they have it held, as long as they push it to us. You made reference to uh, you know S corps, LLCs, uh, and even private equity. I guess would be in part of that. Uh, let's talk about the donation of those type assets. So I'm I'm a business owner. I have a I have a business. I know it's going to be, I know it's going to be sold. It's not going to happen for some time. I know I want to give a portion of the, that eventual sales price away, and I want to do it in the most tax advantageous. Yeah, so we usually see this with people who are coming up to a liquidity event. And if you think about it, it's really a smart time to think about making those gifts because for many of them, it's the most appreciated asset they own, and it's the highest tax year that they're going to experience. So taking in these types of assets, um, you know, usually what we need to do is work with company counsel to understand, can the asset legally be transferred to the charity? So we've got a team of five attorneys on staff that will kind of go through some of that diligence to understand, can the asset legally be transferred? Two, we want to understand whether there's a clear path to liquidity. Um, how quickly are they going to be able to sell those assets? Um, so we want to know whether that asset will be sold within roughly a 12 to 18 month window. We want to understand what that looks like. Um, Obviously, there can't be any prearranged sale. The other thing that we look at around timing is making sure that there hasn't been any definitive purchase and sale agreement put in place, um, that there isn't any anticipatory assignment of income. So those are some things we consider the prearranged sale. Um, so we also want to make sure that there's no kind of on the other side of that anticipatory assignment of income, right? If there's already been a definitive purchase and sale agreement, the IRS won't let you then make a charitable gift to offset that liability. So that's something that we take a look at. We make sure that it's not um, not something that's going to be an issue. The other things we look at as well is whether there would be any kind of UBIT related to the transaction. Um, so unrelated business taxable income. So we'll do some calculations there. We've got some efficiency being that we're a nonprofit. And then lastly, uh, we just make sure that uh, the client knows that they would have to get a third party independent appraisal for that. 
Um, there can be some real substantial tax advantages. So if someone's philanthropically inclined, it's much more advantageous for them to make a gift prior to sale because, you know, on a million dollar gift, you're not having to pay that 23.8% tax. That means, you know, $238,000 could be now available for future grant making. So giving that asset prior to that taxable event is much more advantageous for the donor. Yeah. So just to kind of sum up in terms of just kind of the general structures of that arrangement, uh, mm-hmm. once you start to feel like, you know, there could be a liquidity event on the horizon, that would be really the time to kind of get with your, get with your attorneys, get with the people at Fidelity Charitable or, or whomever you were you know, trying to mm-hmm. negotiate this kind of transaction with, understand what the, uh, what the actual powers of transference of stock really were, see if that could mm-hmm. you know happen, uh, and then they would need some sort of appraisal to understand what the value of what they were actually giving was, and of course, making sure that under whatever gift scenario they have that there's a, a likelihood of a sale between twelve and twenty four months. Uh, let, let's assume yep. that all that sure. falls into place. I mean, that's a lot of you know that's a lot of ifs and, and, and buts and attorneys in the same yeah. room. So you never know. But if, if that does uh, avail itself to be something that is usable, then you essentially have a pre-tax deduction of your business sale as opposed to a post-tax mm-hmm. deduction of your business sale. Uh, so that's yeah. a, that's a huge yeah. concept for anybody who's ever put money in a 401k or put money in an after-tax 401k. It's, it's kind of a similar, uh, kind of a similar thing. Look at your tax return on one versus the other, and you'll, and you'll see the power of it. Uh, so I think most sure. most closely held business owners would would get that concept. Let Let's talk about what happens when things don't go according to plan, though. Let Let's say there was every mm-hmm. intention that for twelve and twenty four months this sale was going to happen, um, but I could imagine there would be a lot of people toward the end of two thousand nineteen who thought they had a saleable business and then COVID mm-hmm. hit. And then I'm sure a lot of those transactions didn't quite go according to plan, or maybe they didn't mm-hmm. go off at all. What happens in that? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What happens in that world where you've already kind of taken the, where you've already made the, the donation of the ownership interest mm-hmm. and you don't get the eventual mm-hmm. sale. Yep. 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 So sometimes we get the, we'll have the donor uh, sign a right of first refusal or uh, put right back. So if there is a fall through that there is some sort of redemption strategy that can be put in place. We very seldom have ever used that, but it's in there just in case there is a fall through. I'd say most of everything we come through, it, it does happen kind of the way we, we anticipate but if there is a fall through, we have a strategy to make sure that there's liquidity uh, and that there will be an opportunity to get the money out the door to the organizations. I mean, that's kind of the focus of what we do is on the grant making. Sure. Side. So there's some provisions that we put in there, um, but most of the time the things kind of fall through the way they originally intend. The one time that we see where people will say, oh, I want to sell the business or things just maybe it's too far along. They've already signed the purchase and sale agreement. So sometimes we come to these deals where the it's too far along and they've already signed the purchase and sale agreement. So for those individuals, now that they get this new large cash infusion, you can view this as an opportunity to 
still do some charitable gifting with appreciated property. So if you have stocks that have gone up in value, you can gift your stocks away. You're going to avoid your capital gains tax on those stocks, but use this new cash infusion from the business sale to effectively reestablish your basis, kind of get everything kind of up from where you might have had it, from where you previously had owned the stocks, and uh, kind of reset the basis. So there's a lot of neat planning that can go, even if um, plan B or plan A doesn't work, plan B might a- actually have some more savings. Uh, right. So just well. a, as, a, as a concept, let's say you sold a business for $5 million. Uh, you had a stock portfolio of $5 million that had a, a $2 million unrealized gain in it. Uh, if you weren't able mm-hmm. to gift the LLC prior to the transaction, the transaction's already been announced or there's some other hiccup involved Uh, Mm -hmm. you could take the two million dollars that is an unrealized gains transfer those appreciated assets to your DAF, get the write-off for that Mm -hmm. then take two million dollars of that transaction and repurchase those same stocks assuming you still liked them uh, for the long term and ostensibly just reset your own uh, basis for the future is that fair Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And use that as a way to kind of reset the basis for any kind of future tax Very liability. Cool. Issues. Very cool. So in on the, on the subject yeah. of real estate, uh, you guys see a lot of real estate gifts mm-hmm. coming in and you see people using conservation easements and things of that nature, or is that we per, yeah, we used to have a policy that would allow that, but um, as time has gone on, we just did less and less of it. So real estate is not an area that we have a lot of focus. However, there are a lot of great organizations that will do the real estate transactions, just not kind of in our. Uh, our what about some other cool things? Let's talk collectibles. I think you, I think you mentioned one to yeah. I've seen yeah. a, a classic car uh, collection be donated in the last year, mm-hmm. uh, wine, art, mm-hmm. all those things. If you've got something that you mm-hmm. you feel like has some value, and it's a little off the beaten path, what's the mm-hmm. what's the path or what's the procedure for trying to understand when and how you can donate those things? Yeah, with those like collectibles, they kind of sit in a different area of tax code. So art and things like that. Usually, it's best because there's something called mm-hmm. related use property uh, in the IRS code, and so. If the charity is in the related use of displaying art, they're going to give you a much more advantageous deduction. So if you're at a museum and you're displaying art, then you can get a fair market value tax deduction for that art because it's in the related use of that charity to display it. So for collectibles, I always say um, museums are probably your your best first avenue there. There are certain times where um, collectibles are held in like a family LLC, and that might make sense to give units in the LLC. Uh, to the donor advice fund, but nine times out of 10 collectibles are usually better suited as an outright gift uh, to a, to a charity or a nonprofit directly. Um, That's not always the case. We'll always take the call, see how the assets might be held and see what could be a good fit. But a, but a university with a a significant museum uh, program Mm -hmm. or, you know, any one of the museums would be a good first step for somebody that has really any kind of collection that they feel like has some value, right? For, for sure. Yeah. But museums tend to be the um, kind of the, the first step in those collectible gifts. Um, there's some, some good research and there's a great article in the wall street journal about 
um, giving to a museum, the one thing you just want to make sure is that you get a contemporaneous written acknowledgement that no goods or services were changed. Because fortunately, there was a donor, not one of our donors, but it was a donor who had made a gift to a charity and they didn't get that. And the IRS said, there's no deduction for you. And so uh, it's always important to make sure that you, you follow those steps and the charities you partner with kind of know the full gambit of what needs to be done for those kind of unique gifts. And then let's talk about the world of private equity for a minute. And yeah, and there is a distinction between making a gift of private equity interest to foundations versus donor advised funds. Um, mm-hmm. Correct. Talk about the distinction and talk about how even some people with foundations might choose to make the gift of private equity interest into a donor advised fund to take advantage of the difference. Yep. So for private equity interests, uh, privately held business interests, whether you give those um, to a private foundation or donor advised funds, it's important to know that because they're private, they don't get the same types of tax treatment that you might think. So if you give a privately held business interest to a private foundation, uh, you get uh, the basis deduction for that gift. So you don't get a fair market valuation. So if you give a 10% allocation of what you own, to a private foundation, that's a 10% allocation on the basis. Now, because donor advised funds are public charities, um, you actually get a fair market value treatment for those types of gifts. So it's important to note with privately held business interests that donor advised funds are going to offer you a more advantageous tax advantage um, because that fair market value treatment as opposed to a basis treatment that a private foundation will. So We work with a lot of families who already have an existing foundation and they want to gift their closely held business interests or private equity interests uh, to their foundation. And a lot of their tax professionals will say, wait, hold up. You're not going to get the the savings that you might think. Let's utilize a donor advised fund for that private business interest um, because you get the a much more advantageous uh, deduction. So it's just something for people in that situation to just really be aware of. There's a lot of nuance in tax code and that you work with uh, an advisor who knows kind of the distinctions on how those are treated and, and really what's going to be best to, to help from those gifting standpoints. Sure. And just one last thing uh, before we, before we hop off here, Brandon. So, you know, with you guys giving away, I think it's $61 billion over uh-huh. the years, I, I there's probably not another organization I could talk to that would be uh, really as on the cutting edge of what the current trends are as, as you would be. Mm-hmm. What are some of the trends in philanthropy? Uh, what are some of the changing uh, techniques and just changing ways that people are thinking about their giving uh, just based on what, you know, what you're observing on your end? So the biggest change that I've seen in my tenure here is probably this concept of bunching or accelerative gifting. Um, And that I think has really been driven over the last few years due to tax law change. So in 2017, when the Tax and Job Acts was passed, it made it harder for many Americans to itemize. Um, So they doubled your standard deduction, which is all well and good. But for those who are writing checks to charity or supporting philanthropy, if you're not clearing that hurdle, Uh, you're making gifts and not getting any kind of tax advantage. So one thing we are seeing a lot of individuals and families doing is instead of just getting to the line where you're just barely getting a deduction or any kind of tax advantage, 
what families are doing are saying, well, let's give four or five years. That way we don't even, it's not that we get to the line, it's that we exceed the line. And we save so much more by saying, let's give four years up front, we can do it. Um, that's going to put more savings into the pocket, uh, more savings from a tax planning perspective. But now you've then got a ready reserve of giving so that money is there ready to be used as needed in the coming years. In my mind, that's probably the biggest shift that I've seen is this concept of giving up front to really get above that line. And then the other is just how people are giving the asset that people most commonly would give is just cash, right? They just reach in their pocketbook and that's really what they want to give. And that number's really flipped. We used to do a lot more cash contributions than securities. And now we're doing well, well, well above um, cash when it comes to securities. I think 60% is uh, securities, 30% is cash where that number was reversed. And then the last 10% is going to be appreciated uh, privately held business interest gifts. So that concept of putting the checkbook down and giving smarter assets is really kind of taking hold because that means more money for philanthropy um, by gifting the right asset. Yeah, I think one of the things we've uh, we've noticed here is if we can replace giving as a function of your income budget with mm-hmm. giving as a as a smaller function of your net worth. Uh, that it takes away some of that inclination to just give cash because you're, if you're selecting a a piece of your net worth, then automatically all these appreciated assets come into play. And if you're Mm -hmm. thinking about giving as a, as a budgetary function of what's left over that cash contribution is kind of a natural. And, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's hard for people, especially in retirement because you go from, you know, very high income years to, you know, during retirement, you might not have as much income, but you likely have more net worth than you used to have. So we're trying to help people make that, make that kind of just that mindset leap uh, mm-hmm. and figure out, well, what is, what's the percentage that I could give in net worth and how does that coincide to what my current giving is and how I'm budgeting it? And, and is that something that's more sustainable long-term? So, so far we've had good success with it, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, I like well, that. Brandon, thank, thank, you, you, as a... thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. I know we had a, you know, a few technical difficulties, but I think we, uh, we soldiered through to the end. So uh, yeah, you're, you're a pro on all levels and I really appreciate your partnership over the years and I appreciate you joining us. Thanks James. And I just always like to share a heartfelt thank you to the listeners for those of you who do incorporate philanthropy. Uh, I can tell you it makes a meaningful difference in the lives of others. Early on in my life, my family benefited from the kindness of strangers. And for those of you who are listening who do that, uh, I just want to share a heartfelt thank you. Well, thank you, Brandon. Yeah, take care. And that's a wrap for this episode of A Voice from the Hills podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And just a reminder that for access to this episode and all prior episodes, you can follow A Voice from the Hills podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcast content. We'd love it if you would subscribe to the pod, post a review, give us a rating. If you'd like updates on future podcasts and all our other content, you can also follow A Voice from the Hills and Silicon Hills Wealth Management on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Silicon Hills Wealth and the services we offer, please check us out at our website at siliconhillswealth.com. 
And please know that your engagement and feedback is truly a gift. We can only do our best work when you are here to listen. Thank you.